Part Three, Chapter Thirteen of War and Peace by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Marianne. Rostov went that same night with his platoon to serve as outpost stationed in the front of Bagration's division. His hussars were posted two and two along the line. He himself kept riding his horse the whole length of the line, struggling to overcome his irresistible inclination to drowsiness. Behind him he could see the enormous extent of space, filled with the watchfires of our army, dimly gleaming through the fog. In front of him was the misty darkness. Though he strained his eyes to penetrate this misty distance, he could see nothing. Now it seemed to brighten up a little, then there seemed to be some black object, then he imagined that he saw a light which he thought must be the watchfires where the enemy were, and then again he told himself that his eyes had deceived him. He closed his eyes, and his imagination presented now his sovereign, now Denisov, now his recollections of Moscow, and again he would open his eyes and see right before his face the head and ears of his horse, and here and there the dark forms of hussars as he came within six paces of them, while everywhere was the same misty darkness veiling the distance. Why not? It might very possibly come to pass, thought Rostov. The emperor might meet me and give me an order, just as to any other officer, might say, ride off yonder and find out what is there. I have heard many stories about his finding just by mere chance an officer like me, and taking him into his personal service. What if he should take me into his personal service? Oh, and how I should watch over him, how I should tell him the whole truth, how I should unmask his deceivers. And Rostov, in order to give greater color to the love and devotion which he felt for his sovereign, imagined that he had before him an enemy whom he was killing, or a German traitor whose ears he was roundly boxing, in presence of his sovereign. Suddenly a distant shout startled him. He awoke and opened his eyes. Where am I? Oh, yes, at the outposts. Countersign and password are cart pole and umuts. What a shame that our squadron is going to be held in reserve tomorrow, he said to himself. I will beg to take part. That is probably the only chance I shall have of seeing the emperor. It won't be long before I am relieved. I will ride up and down once more, and then I will go and ask the general. He straightened himself up in the saddle, and turned his horse once more to inspect his hussars. It seemed to him that it had grown lighter. Toward his left he could see a slope, the gleam of a declivity, and, lying opposite to him, a dark knoll which seemed as steep as a wall. On the top of this knoll was a white spot. Rostov could not clearly make out whether it was a clearing in the woods, lighted by the moon, or a patch of snow, or white houses, it even seemed to him that there was something moving in that white spot. It must be snow, that spot. Spot, untash, said Rostov, first in Russian, then in French. How absurd! It's no tash. Natasha, my sister, has black eyes. Natashka. How amazed she will be when I tell her I have seen the emperor. Natasha. My saber, Tasha. Take it. Farther to the right, your nobility, there are bushes there, said the voice of the hussar, by whom Rostov was passing, half asleep. Rostov raised his head, which had fallen over almost down to his horse's mane. He drew up near the hussar. The sleep of youth, 
of childhood irresistibly overcame him. Oh, dear me, what was I thinking of? I must not forget. How shall I speak to the emperor? No, that's not it. That's for tomorrow. Oh, yes, yes, that spot. Sitash. They'll be attacking us. Us? Who? The hussars. But the hussars and... And a pair of mustaches. Along the Sverskaya the hussar was riding, and I was thinking about him. Right opposite Harif's house. The old man Harif. Ech, splendid little Denisov. Ah, this is all nonsense. The main thing. The emperor is here now. How he looked at me and wanted to say something to me, but he did not venture. No, it was I who did not venture. This is all mixed up. But the main thing is that I must not forget that I had something important on my mind. So I had, Natashka. Natasha. Latash. Yes, that's a good joke. And again his head sank forward on the horse's mane. Suddenly it seemed to him that the enemy were firing at him. What? What? What's that? Speak! What is it? cried Rostov, waking. At the instant Rostov opened his eyes, he heard in front of him, in the direction of the enemy, the prolonged shouts of thousands of voices. His horse, and the hussar's station near him, picked up their ears at these sounds. On the spot from which the cries proceeded, one point of fire after another flashed and died, and along the whole line of the French army, stretching up the hills, gleamed those fires, while the shouts grew louder and louder. Rostov made out that it was French, but could not distinguish the words. There was too great a roar of voices. All it sounded like was a confused, ah, and rrr. What's that? What do you think it is? asked Rostov, turning to his neighbor, the hussar. It's from the enemy, isn't it? The hussar made no reply. What? Don't you hear anything? asked Rostov, after waiting for some time for the hussar to speak. How can anybody tell, your nobility? replied the hussar, in a non-committal way. Judging from the direction, it must be the enemy, mustn't it? inquired Rostov. Maybe tis, and maybe tisn't, exclaimed the hussar. You see, it's night. There now, steady, he cried to his horse, who was growing restive. Rostov's horse also became excited, and pawed the frozen ground, as he listened to the shouting and glanced at the flashing fires. The shouts of the voices constantly increased in volume, and mingled in a general roar, such as could have been produced only by an army of many thousand men. The fires stretched out more and more, until at last they seemed to extend throughout the French camp. Rostov had now lost all inclination to sleep. The joyful, enthusiastic huzzas in the enemy's army had a most stimulating effect upon him. Viva l'empereur, l'empereur, were the words that Rostov could now clearly distinguish. Well, they can't be far away, it must be just beyond the brook, said he to the hussar by his side. The hussar only sighed, without vouchsafing any answer, and coughed sullenly. Along the line of the hussars was heard the sound of horsemen coming at full gallop, and out of the darkness of the night suddenly loomed up a shape apparently larger than a colossal elephant. It was a non-commissioned officer of hussars. "'The generals, your nobility,' cried the subaltern, riding up to Rostov. 
Rostov, still looking in the direction of the shouting and the light, joined the subaltern and rode back to meet several horsemen who were riding along the line. One was on a white horse. It was Bagration, who, together with Prince Dolgorukov and several aides, came down to see what they could make of the strange phenomenon of the fires and the shouting in the enemy's army. Rostov rode up to Bagration, reported, and took his place among the adjutants, who were listening to what the general might say. "'Believe me,' said Prince Dolgorukov, addressing Bagration, "'this is nothing but a ruse. He is retreating, and has ordered the rear-guard to light fires and make a noise, so as to deceive us.' "'It is not likely,' said Bagration. "'Last evening I saw them on that knoll. If they were retreating, they would have abandoned it. Mr. Officer,' turning to Rostov, "'are his scouts still there?' They were there last evening, but I can't tell now, your illustriousness. If you would like, I will take some of the hussars and find out, replied Rostov. Bagration hesitated, and making no answer, tried to peer into Rostov's face. Well, all right. Go and reconnoitre, said he, after a short pause. I will do so. Rostov applied spurs to his horse, called Subaltern Fenchenko and two other hussars, ordered them to follow him, and galloped off down the slope in the direction of the prolonged shouts. Rostov felt both sad and glad to be riding thus alone with three hussars yonder into that mysterious and terrible misty distance where no one had preceded him. Bagration called to him from the crest not to go further than the brook, but Rostov pretended not to hear what he said, and without pausing they rode farther and farther, constantly finding themselves subject to illusions, mistaking bushes for trees, gullies for men, and constantly rectifying his impressions. After they had reached the bottom at a rapid trot, they no longer saw any fires, either on our side or on the enemy's, but the shouts of the French began to sound louder and clearer. In the ravine, he saw before him what looked to be a river, but when he approached it, he recognized that it was a highway over which he had once ridden. When he reached the highway, he reined in his horse with some uncertainty. Should he ride along the road, or cross it, or strike into the dark field on the other side. To ride along the road which shone through the fog was less perilous, because he could distinguish men at a greater distance. "'Follow me,' he cried, crossing the road, and he began to gallop up the hill toward that place where a French picket had been stationed the afternoon before. "'Your nobility, there he is!' exclaimed one of the hussars, and before Rostov had a chance to look at what was beginning to loom up black in the fog, there came a flash of fire." The report rang out, and the bullet, as though regretting something, buzzed high over their heads through the fog and sped out of hearing. There was no second report. The powder merely flashed in the priming pan. Rostov turned his horse about and rode back at a gallop. Again from different points four musket shots rang out, and the bullets with various tones whistled by and buried themselves in the darkness. Rostov reined in his horse, which, like himself, felt a thrill of joy at the firing, and proceeded at a walk. "'Well, there it is again. There it is again,' whispered some inspiriting voice in his heart. But there were no more shots. As soon as he neared Bagration, Rostov again urged his horse into a gallop, and held his hand to his visor as he approached. Dolgorukov still clung to his opinion that the French were retreating, and had kindled the fires merely for the sake of deceiving us. "'What does this signify?' he asked, as Rostov rode up to them." they might retreat and still leave pickets. "'It is evident they have not all gone, Prince,' said Bagration. 
Tomorrow morning. Tomorrow. We shall know for a certainty. There is a picket, your illustriousness, in just the same place as yesterday, reported Rostov, bending forward, still holding his hand at his visor, and unable to refrain from a smile of delight at his ride, and especially at the sound of the bullets. Very good. Very good, replied Bagration. Thank you, Mr. Officer. Your illustriousness, asked Rostov, allow me to ask a favor. What is it? Tomorrow our squadron is to be left in reserve. Allow me to be transferred to the first squadron. What is your name? Count Rostov. Ah, good. Stay with me as orderly. Son of Ilya Andreyitch, asked Dolgorukov, but Rostov made him no answer. So I may expect it, your illustriousness? I will see to it. Tomorrow, very likely, I may be sent with some message to the sovereign, said Rostov to himself. Glory to God! The shouts and cries in the enemy's army arose from the circumstance that at the time Napoleon's general order was being read throughout the army, the emperor himself came on horseback to inspect the bouviacs. The soldiers, seeing the emperor, lighted trusses of straw and followed him with cries of, Viva l'Empereur! Napoleon's order was as follows. Soldiers, the Russian army has come against us in order to avenge the Austrian army of Ulm. These are the same battalions which we defeated at Holobrun, and which, since that time, we have been constantly following up. The position which we occupy is paramount, and as soon as they attempt to outflank my right they will expose their own flank. Soldiers, I myself will direct your battalions. I will keep out of range of the firing if you, with your usual gallantry, carry confusion and consternation into the ranks of the enemy. But if the combat becomes for one instant doubtful, you will see your emperor exposing himself at the front to the blows of the enemy, since there can be no hesitation in the victory, especially today, when the honor of the French infantry, in whose hand lies the honor of the nation, is at stake. Do not break the ranks under the pretext of carrying away the wounded. Let each man be animated by the thought that we must conquer these mercenaries of England, filled with such hatred against our nation. This victory will bring the campaign to an end, and we can retire to winter quarters where we shall be joined by the fresh troops which are mobilizing in France. And then the peace which I shall conclude will be memorable for my people, for you and for me. Napoleon End of chapter 13